Great, thanks Carly and good morning everyone. It is great to be back. Lots of happy smiling faces this morning. Who's got two days off coming up? Uh, look at the rest of us, keeping the country running. Well, I want to honour Tim and the leadership of this church for the fabulous job that they are doing, that many of you are doing with them. How about we put our hands together for those who serve us so faithfully. I want to look at a subject this morning that I believe will, uh, will be very important to us. It's easy to say that a sermon is prophetic, but it very much depends on us being responsive to what we believe God is saying as he knocks on the door of our hearts. Our faith can seem so often as if it's under fire. At every turn, we seem to have people denigrating and ridiculing faith. But what's our response to it? Perspective is so important. A little like putting on the right lenses. The lenses of faith by which we hear from God, respond to what he says, and put in practice a different attitude, different actions to get a different result. We can't manufacture outcomes. We humbly position ourselves before the Lord and ask that he speaks to us, that he works through us. But on our watch, will we not say together that the kingdom will advance, that the devil has been defeated, that Jesus Christ is still Lord and prayer still changes things? And what is your and my response to that? It needs to be one of faithfulness, but also one of faith-filledness. Our perspective is important. Man was reading a book on the couch at home. He'd taken his glasses off and put them on the coffee table. His wife came home and looked at him and approached and said, you know, without your glasses on, you remind me of that handsome young man I once married. He said, without my glasses on, you look pretty good too. <laughs> what glasses do you have on this morning? As we look at a subject from the book of Jude, second last book of the Bible, one often forgotten, quite small, but I believe profound. Now have a look at some statistics that have come out of COVID. Statistics are a story. They give a perspective on reality. And it's not just about our interpretation of them, it's also about our response to them. In the McCrindle research that many of us would be familiar with, there was a finding that after COVID, there had been a 16% drop off in people's trust for local churches. That's one in six people fewer over the period of about three years. But for Christians, perhaps not always modelling the greatest of outreach and care during COVID, there had been a drop in trust by one in five. And then even more alarming, a drop off in trust of the church in general by one in four. Now, Christianity might seem increasingly challenging. It might feel sometimes like we're rowing against the tide. And if you're paddling your canoe upstream, it feels like a lot of hard work. We would rather put up a sail in the boat and let the wind of the Spirit take it where God wants it to go. In fact, we have access to the Spirit to lighten the load. We have Jesus in the boat. We have the Father beckoning us to the finish line of the race of life. 
But in all of the challenges and struggles, it can feel like we are fighting an uphill battle. As we look at the book of Jude, I want us to see how that could be made just a little easier this morning. And I'm certainly not going to stand here and just give another, let's read the Bible, let's pray more sermon, because whilst we need to do those things, it can feel like a guilt trip. As we look at what the Word of God says, it stirs faith in us. We need to respond to it. We need to come to the Word with hungry and open hearts. But as God speaks, what does He propel us to do as we walk out this door? We feel once again like the canoe is flowing forward in the stream of God's refreshing, seeing that what God is calling us to, He is also equipping us to. He is with us in our tomorrow, not just in our today. The book of Jude, chapter 1, because there is only one chapter, and verse 3 says this, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith. Say that with me, contend for the faith. That's our job too. It's our response to contend for the faith that was once entrusted to God's holy people. Nothing's changed in that respect. We are entrusted with a mission to lead other people to faith in Christ, to be God's ambassadors and his voice in the marketplace. And yet we need to contend for the faith, to fight for the faith, to be earnest for the faith that was once entrusted and still is to us. On our watch, advancing the kingdom and being excited about what God can yet do in the days ahead. In Matthew 1.25, we see that in the earliest passage of the gospel, the first chapter of the first gospel, Joseph did not consummate his marriage uh, to Mary. Sorry, Mo Joseph did not consummate their marriage until Mary gave birth to a son. The son that Mary had, of course, was Jesus. But after... Jesus was born, there were more children. And it seems that there was no sexual relationship until, or giving birth to other children, until after Jesus was born. Jesus had, in other words, many brothers. And they're mentioned in Matthew 13, 55, the people from Jesus' hometown asked, isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't his mother's name Mary? Aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon and Judas. The last of these, the name Judas, has an alternative rendering. Exactly the same word in the original Greek, but interpreted here as Judas. And in Jude chapter 1, verse 1, the name Jude. It's the same person, the earthly brother of Jesus. Now let's be clear, Jesus was born miraculously and not through the sexual relationship of Joseph and Mary, because we're told by the Bible that it was a miraculous conception, Jesus given by God, why? So that he would be sinless, as the sinless son of God come to earth and take the place of you and I dying on the cross for our sin. If he carried sin of his own, he would have had to die for his sin but he qualified to die in our place. Now, Jesus Christ, hanging on the cross, 
bleeding to death as not only a human and therefore a like-for-like substitute, but as God, sinless perfection, it could be given in our place. You would think that the brothers of Jesus would have been quite stunned and quite accepting of the fact that the Messiah had come to live in their midst. And yet we're told in John 7 and verse 5, even Jesus' own brothers did not believe in him. They lived with him, but they didn't understand. They had the wrong perspective. They didn't see as God would have wanted them to see. And yet Acts 1.14 says that after the resurrection, something significant happened. It says they all joined together constantly in prayer, along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Jude was counted among the followers of Jesus, finally. He'd got the right lenses. He was seeing with faith. He was able to continue to propel the work of the gospel that had been entrusted to him too. I became a Christian at the age of 16. I didn't come to faith initially because of theology. I didn't come because of a clarity around the Bible where everything made sense. I had an encounter and an experience with God. But it drew me to want to love God. It drew me into deeper relationship, to seek after the truth, to open the scriptures and let faith be stirred in my heart. At the age of 16, there was a faith being deposited or entrusted to me. And over many years of putting one foot in front of the other, just serving God as best I knew how, with slip-ups along the way, not in perfection, I simply made myself available to God and said, Lord, use me as you will. I have the privilege of seeing many churches in my role across the country. I'm currently the national um, chair of the Churches of Christ movement too and see that in all of the diversity of what God is doing across this nation, there are many people with a passion for the gospel, many people who despite the discouragement around them are laying a hold of the charge given to take the gospel of Jesus, proclaim his name, and yet we don't do it perfectly. In the imperfection of who we all are, in the inadequacy sometimes that we feel, we nevertheless climb back on the saddle, get up off the ground, dust ourselves off, and say, Lord, here I am again. One foot in front of the other from the age of 16, if I'd have known then what I was going to be doing today, I probably would have run in the other direction. How about you? So, if God had called Jude, if he had entrusted him to then write these profound words that we're going to read a few more of now, I wonder if he could not call us too through these words and draw us to a deeper faith. Have a look at a really interesting pattern we see in the book of Jude. It's noticed that in much ancient literature, there's an intentional structuring of pairs of thoughts that start at the beginning of the letter and at the end of the letter. A mirrored or reflected thought that's at the end, drawing our attention to what's at the start. You see, for example, in verses 1 and 2, it mentions salvation and mercy and love, and we see 
that theme again in verses 21 to 25. As we work our way in, the second pairing is after the first and before the last. The reflective thought is about the priority of faith. The importance of it when it derives from the word of God and God's trying to give us the new lenses through which to look. Then as we work our way in towards the middle, we see mention of the problem of false teachers and their divisiveness, their unsettling impact on the church. Then there's a non-biblical source that's referenced about a biblical person. Firstly, in verse 9, there's mention of Michael, the archangel, and then in verses 14 and 15, another non-biblical source, this time representing or regarding Enoch. As you work your way in towards the middle again, there's a fate described for the false teachers. They meet their destiny. Their fate is sealed as people who have led the church astray and our attention is then drawn to the middle. Very intentionally, we, ta we are taken to verse 11 where woe is proclaimed against the false teachers. Jesus proclaimed woe against the scribes and Pharisees for undermining the faith of God's people in the Gospels. And so it's quite common in the first century to see these so-called woe oracles proclaimed. And this one doesn't always seem to make a lot of sense. But let's understand that false teachers that existed in the first century were communicating this sense of ungodly influence that was corrupting the church. There is an ungodly influence that still wants to corrupt us today. Every lying deceit of the devil seeking to conspire against us and undermine our faith is something we need to be alert to. Not ourselves proclaiming judgment on those opposed to God, but ourselves bringing the antidote. Let's first understand what this false teaching influence was in the first century that similarly still exists today. It's a threefold mention of Bible characters from the Old Testament. It says, woe to them, the false teachers, they've taken the way of Cain, who was Cain. Cain killed his brother Abel. God was not pleased with Cain's sacrifice. Cain was jealous of his younger brother and he murdered him in a fit of anger. It goes on to say, they, the false teachers, have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. Balaam, we can read about in the book of Numbers. He was called as a prophet to pronounce a curse on the people of God by a jealous king. And he was told that he would be given plenty of money. He at least outwardly seemed to say that he didn't want to comply, but inwardly, God knew the motivation of the heart. He was being sucked into greed. And Balaam's error, one of lusting after wealth, was what brought him undone. Then it talks about being destroyed in Korah's rebellion. Korah was literally with his followers swallowed up into the earth 
as it parted in what was probably an earthquake. And they met their demise. Why? Because Korah and his followers had risen up against Moses and said, do you think you're the only follower of God? Do you think there's not others of us who are anointed? Do you think we're not called to? We want to be careful today to understand that in our New Testament church era, we don't follow exactly the same interpretation or have exactly the same context. And yet, nevertheless, there is a certain rebellion in the hearts of people against the things of God and the church that would seek to say, well, we don't need Jesus. We don't need a local church. We're good people. If there is a God, he surely won't judge or condemn us if he's a God of love. We can get drawn into a corrupted thinking that pollutes the truth, that conspires against faith. And we can see these three elements doing their work to undermine us even still. So having a look at the three kinds of false teachers, or the three kinds of ungodly influence that we see today, there is Cain who murdered his brother and symbolises what we might call the lust of the flesh, which in this case manifested itself in anger. Anger comes in all sorts of forms, doesn't it? You might not put your fist through a plate, uh, a plate of glass, but you might be more passive-aggressive. It may well be that you harbour hostility towards people that never quite manifests to the degree that you feel it. There's all sorts of unresolved hatred or all sorts of offence that's not dealt with. There can be a seething inward anger. If we don't deal with this, it deals with us. The sin of Balaam here, where he was willing to take money to conspire against God's people, it speaks of the lust of the eyes. What our eyes feast on can draw us in to a different kind of sin that we understand all too well. When we just must have the things that this world offers, when we go to a lot of online spending or engage in some retail therapy, we can deceive ourselves into believing that what we must have, which is what we don't need, is something that ultimately is somehow even God-desired. We can believe that the blessing and favour of God shines on our material wealth rather than look at times to use our wealth to honour the things of God. A person once had his credit card stolen. He was telling his neighbour. The neighbour asked, have you reported it to the police? He said, no, I don't think I'll bother. Why on earth not? Because the thief's spending less than my wife was. <laughs> well, in truth, of course, many of us men, we spend a lot more even if we spend it on televisions, gadgets, things that we don't really need to keep up with people perhaps that we don't really like. This third, this third representative of sin, Korah, rebelling against authority, speaks of the pride of life. And it's perhaps symbolised for us sometimes in the use of phones, whether for selfies or for spending, or just for scrolling. 
those little handheld gadgets can be means of idolatry or blessing. Are they a blessing or a curse for you? There's nothing wrong, of course, with doing many of the things phones enable. But if they dominate our lives, we spend more time with them than with our children, with the Word of God. Then what ostensibly sometimes starts to appear positive gets drawn across into the terrain of idolatry where we're pulled into sin, where sin at its most basic level is just anything that takes us away from God. I don't know about you, but I've found over the years, not just in talking to others, but in being real about my own life, that it's very easy to justify the behaviours and practices, the busyness, all that's on our plate, as if we can't do anything about it. Many more times than we're prepared to admit, we have the capacity to make a choice. We have the choice that can take us to more godly pursuits. We can close the door on some of the temptations and distractions that we give ourselves over to all too often. We can find more time for prayer, for reading the Word of God, for sharing our faith, there's going to be a hunger in our hearts to do it. And I believe that what we're seeing here is three problems. I want to move in a moment to talking about the antidotes. But this is quite a significant cluster of three thoughts that oppose the work of God that we also see in other passages of the Bible. In 1 John 2:16, everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. It doesn't originate from God. These distractions, these conspiring influences are an attempt of the devil, who is the prince of the power of the air. He is the God, small g, of this world. He opposes the work of God, capital G, who is drawing us into relationship. And the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life are very much alive and at work today. Even in the Old Testament, we also see its work. Just look at one example, where there's mention made in Deuteronomy of kings. Kings hadn't come to Israel yet, but God knew that one day they would. And kings symbolise for us our own desire for influence, a desire to be Lord of our own lives, but in a better sense, to have authority. Don't forget we rule and reign with Christ in this world. We're called to partner with him to advance the gospel and we do it as his representatives and ambassadors. But if we become kings or lords of our own life, if we give in to the sins we've just looked at, there's problems awaiting and I believe it's why this passage, Deuteronomy 17, highlights for us these exact same three sins. Anyone who wants influence, anyone who wants authority, anyone who wants to serve God even for good needs to beware, we're told. In this passage it said, not to have too many women in an era where multiple wives were permitted. Solomon had how many? 
He had a thousand women in his life. And we're told that they took his heart away from the things of God. This, of course, speaks again of the lust of the flesh. In a sexual context, whereas before, we looked at the lust of the flesh in anger. We're also told in this passage that items of gold and silver shouldn't be accrued. Solomon had enormous wealth given by God, but when his heart strayed from God, it's when his wealth became a problem, when he was given over to the lust of the eyes in the form of greed. We're also told that kings should not acquire too many horses. Why? Because it speaks of the pride of life. In trusting in the military strength that the king would have, rather than in trusting in God. Solomon too had so many horses, two for each of his chariots and about 1,200 in reserve. I don't know about you, but I don't have too many horses. And yet I think there are many other ways in which my own pride has me drawn subtly into what I can control, has me drawn into things I would like to do, that I believe are important. All three of these sins at work in the Old Testament, at work in the New. As I close, what's the antidote? If we drop down to verse 20 of Jude 1, it says, but you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Spirit, he then goes on to talk about the other things you do, but this is the context. We need to build ourselves up in our faith. Again, be earnest, deliberate, intentional about your faith. As I read the Word of God in the mornings, I'm asking that the Lord would speak to me through the pages of Scripture, that He would arrest my attention. I put the words that I've read into prayer, and I've seen as I've helped people do this, that there's physical healings, there's restoration of marriages, there's businesses that turn around. Why? Because as God speaks to us through the pages of the Bible and we lay a hold of what God is saying as the antidote to the pressures of life, we can indeed break the hold of sin. We can indeed advance the cause of the gospel. We can indeed draw on the strength of God to be better than we would ever imagine. And we ultimately give him all the glory. But we pray in the power of the Spirit who descends on our hearts, who wants to be the wind in our sails, who catapults us forward in the things of God and calls us as we read in this passage. And I won't go through it in detail for time, but he draws us to love as the antidote to anger and the lusts of the flesh. Why? Because it says in this verse, that we are to abide in God's love. Did you know that the love that we show others is only the love of God to the extent that we choose to reflect it? We give ourselves over to relationship with God and we then mirror the love of God through our lives. We choose to pull away from God. It's very hard to show that love. I don't know about you, but when I'm craving the things of God, when I'm seeking after him with all my heart, I suddenly find I'm too busy to sin. I'm less inclined to be angry with people. I'm less inclined to have my mind drift to the wrong places. 
Because as we're consumed with the love of God that this verse calls us to abide in, the lusts of the flesh dissipate. Mercy is positioned for us as an antidote to greed or the lust of the eyes. Because the love is an attitude of the heart, the mercy is an action that flows out of it. If the love which is the motivation flows into action that you show to others, in other words, you're engaging with people and caring about their needs. You're spending time with them to advance the gospel in conversation. Your deeds and financial assistance and willingness to have a conversation in someone's hour of need has an outward focus. All of us can be intentional about it. We find that when our heart is given to people, we're suddenly a little less interested in spending our money and our time on ourselves. And finally, we're told that mercy needs to be balanced with the fear of God. This speaks to us of reverence for God, again being drawn to him, not only to his love, but also being drawn to God in a hunger and determination to do what is right in his eyes is an antidote to self-focus or the pride of life. Pride simply mirrors one of the original sins of the devil that we're told about in Ezekiel and Isaiah. The devil wanted to be like the most high God. He contested for that pride of place with pride in his heart. When we choose to get off the throne of our lives and we choose to yield to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, self-focus goes out the window. We hunger to do the will of God. And if in the discipleship call of Jesus and his great commission to the church is to say to go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, he told them not just to baptise people, but he said that they were to obey his commands. And they were, what more, to teach others to obey his commands. Not to tell them, but to teach. To spend time with an outward focus, a loving heart, a mercy-filled response, and in the fear of God, to obey Jesus by choice and to know that in so doing, we close the door to sin. Sin that encroaches at the door of the hearts of all of us can draw us into actions that we think we have no control over, that seem hard to contest. And yet very simply, it's pursuing the things of God that draw us into relationship with God and close the door on everything that opposes God. And I wonder if this three-legged stool of response might just help us to keep our seats this week. Could I ask that you bow your heads? Just in an attitude of prayer-filled response this morning, whether there might be some of us here who acknowledge that Jesus who died in our place, who died for our sin, who died in his perfection, not having to die for himself, but qualifying to die for us, whether he might therefore be drawing you into a greater relationship with him today. There may be some people sitting among us who have never crossed the line into relationship 
with God through Jesus Christ. And it's not simply enough to come to church and hang around great people. We have to own the moment of response. And I'd ask you that if you've never accepted Jesus as Lord and Saviour, or you don't have the assurance in your heart that if you died, you would spend all eternity with Him, then I'd ask you in a moment to step out of your seat while we sing our closing song. There's going to be people up the front who would love to pray for you and introduce you to Jesus. He died so that you may live. And He died so that He could be raised again and give you power, the power of the Spirit, to break the shackles of everything that has conspired against you living your best life. This morning what you say can't happen or is too difficult, where you feel like you've messed up so many times that you can't climb up off the ground and get back in the saddle. I'd say to you today, try it God's way. Open your heart to Him. Accept Him as Lord and Saviour. Recognise that in His being raised from the dead, He broke the power of death and hell over your life and has gifted you with eternal access. And the eternal life starts now and continues the other side of the grave. There are others of you here this morning who maybe you've been a Christian for a long time. Don't feel like you're firing on all cylinders. But I encourage you, if Jesus is the captain of the ship, He's in the boat of life, but it feels like you're rowing against the current. It's been a little bit of a challenge lately. And I ask you to think about whether you've been keeping yourself in the love of God, whether mercy has flown out of your life to touch others, whether with the words of Jude, you can contend for the faith this morning and be drawn into the reverence of a God who welcomes you with open arms, who calls you as your father and says, Put your hand back in mine. You can do it this week. If you'd like prayer this morning, we'd love to pray for you. Of course, if there are any other needs, maybe you're sick, in pain, maybe there's a different problem that we haven't specifically addressed this morning. Come forward and let somebody pray for you. It's part of that reverence of God that we submit to the fact that He wants to touch our lives. He works through our brothers and sisters in His family to pray for us, and to see strength, to see what God wants to do coming to reality today. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus for every person wrestling at the moment with a response and what it would look like. For those who felt perhaps a little guilty or ashamed of what their life has become, there would be a breaking free today. Hungry hearts to respond to your call of love, your call to mercy, your call to a reverence of a life lived in your power and presence. I pray today, Lord Jesus, that your strength and enabling would draw people into relationship with you, that you who rose from the dead, triumphed over death and hell, would reign supreme in our hearts. In Jesus' name we ask, amen.